0: Hello and welcome to Selling Sheet Music, a podcast for composers, arrangers, and songwriters to learn more about publishing and marketing their sheet music. I'm your host, Garrett Breeze. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by HolidayChoirMusic.com. Give your choir the gift of new music this holiday season by commissioning a new work or choosing from our exciting collection of music for Christmas, Easter, Hanukkah, and other holidays. Use the code PODCAST at checkout to get 50% off your first order. This week is part two of my interview with choral composer Kyle Peterson. If you missed last week's episode, you'll definitely want to go back there and get caught up first. At the end of today's episode, we'll also get to share two of Kyle's pieces. And with that, here is part two of my interview with Kyle Peterson. Well, I think at this point, we've scared away the casual listener. So let's jump into (laughs) working with publishers. Yes. (laughs) Um, We met at the ACDA conference in February. We were neighbors at the composer fair. And one of the things that jumped out to me looking at your table is it almost seemed like every piece you had was published by a different publisher. You know, I, there was at yeah. least eight or ten. I can't, I, I can't remember. I should have taken a picture, but I, I, I don't have anything to back this up. But that does seem kind of unusual to me. I feel like most composers tend to gravitate to maybe one or two publishers, and you sort, of, you've sort of managed to flood the zone with it seems just about everybody. Could you talk about? um, how your experience with that has been, I mean, you must have just a wealth of, of insight in how to submit to publishers, how to work with them, how to figure out, you know, which piece goes where, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have placed so many.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could ramble on for a while. cut me off at any, any time here, Garrett, if if you're like, you're going on too long, too long about this. The, I, I do work with a lot of publishers. Um, and it's been an absolutely great experience. I've, I've loved loved working with, with every one of them. At the, see, at the start, I submitted, of course I had no idea what I was doing. So maybe six years ago or so, I wasn't getting a whole lot of traction with anything on my own website. And I had maybe a couple pieces up there. And we can talk more about that later, if, if uh, my sort of travails of self-publishing, but I wasn't getting enough traction. And I thought, well, uh, I'll, I'll start to submit. Uh and the first couple of publishers I submitted to didn't hear back. And and I but then eventually I did. Uh and and Walton said yes to uh, Can we sing the darkness to light? Which which even today is is one of my best selling pieces. Uh and I was thrilled and had a great experience working with Susan uh Lamar, editor at Walton and, and Walton, and I thought, well, this this is great. Um but they didn't take one of my other pieces, and so I submitted it to another publisher, and they said yes. Uh and then got that piece published and and really enjoyed that relationship. And then there was a third piece that eventually that didn't seem to fit that market, either Walton or Santa Barbara. It was a sacred piece. And so I submitted it to ECS. Uh and Mark Lawson said, yes, this, this sounds great. We'll we'll publish it. And that relationship grew and, and I loved it. So each publisher that I sort of that brought me into their fold along the way uh, treated me well and then worked on my behalf. And so I with, with every single publisher, I realized, well, I've got now, first it was just me promoting my stuff. Now I've got one other publisher and, and their team promoting my stuff, and then a, th- a second team and a third team. And so if I think that that there is a piece that would do well in a certain catalog with a certain publisher, then I know that I've got that that whole team of people who, who are incentivized to to help sell my music and, and advocating for me. So... Um, it's no longer just me out there promoting my work, but now I've got a, a, a t- teams of seven or eight, uh, I think seven official sort of overarching publishers and each of them have a couple of different imprints. Uh, and, and all of them are out there trying, uh, advocating for for Kyle Peterson's music, which, uh, which I find delightful, <laughs> works really well. So, so that's, the, that's the short
0: answer. <laughs> so here's the million dollar question and I don't wanna get you in trouble, but, um do you think the music is selling because it's amazing music or is it because it's with <laughs> the right publisher? Like if Walton no. had said yes to everything and taken all of your music, do you think it would have done as well?
1: Uh, that's a great question. And, and I think the quick answer to that is, is no, it, it very much, though I'd like to think that of course, the, the music has to be crafted well and and it has to be solid to begin with, that it it makes a big difference on what publisher it's with because um Different publishers have different niches and different markets and different kinds of directors that that are their primary audience, um, and different choir directors out in the across the world have a, a affinity towards and loyalty towards their own sort of set of publishers. So every time there's a new publisher that brings me on, I have always received at least a few emails from new choir directors who have said, "Ah." I didn't know who you were, but I saw that you, you had this new piece with X publisher. Um, I love their work. Discovered you there, and and I can't wait to, to learn about your other stuff. And then at that point, then they're they're looking for my other, and then they find other publishers that have my stuff. So that's been that's been awesome. One of the things I appreciate about publishers is that because it, it's a costly thing to be a publisher, and so they want to make sure that each piece of music that they spend the time and the money. Uh, bring into their catalog, they want to make sure that that will resonate with their audience and that they'll be able to sell copies of that music. And so I've had publishers who have said, Kyle, I think this piece is interesting, uh, but it's not for us. This is not a piece where, where the choir directors who typically turn to us will look. This seems to be more of a piece for here, or it seems to be a piece for here. Um, and I've really appreciated that sort of editorial input and at this point now, you know, six or so years in, I have a pretty good sense of what I think might sell well at these different publishers. And so if I have a piece that's more pop-oriented, I know Alfred and Hal Leonard, those are probably going to be my go-tos. Uh, if I've got something that's that's clearly sacred and it's going to be primarily a church choir audience, uh, it'll be Beckenhorst or ECS and one of the ECS's imprints. Um, and, and they'll just go right to there. Uh, so that's a, that's a little bit of, of sort of the, the internal sort of dialogue that that, that plays out, but I love the fact that they're all—they're all in your corner. They all want you to do well, and if you do well, they do well. Right, absolutely.
0: How do you navigate the politics of that? Like, you write a new piece, and you've got seven different publishers that probably all want the next hit. How do you decide who to
1: send it to? That's a great question. Fortunately, I write quickly and I write a lot, uh, which is another reason why it made, made sense for me to branch out for multiple publishers because there's a. You know, even during the pandemic, I think I, I put out like fourteen songs that that year, which was way which is way too many. One could argue it's way too many even in a non-pandemic year because you're in, you know the question of are you flooding the market? Are you are you not allowing any individual piece to get enough traction before there's there's just too many options? Um, that, that's a legitimate question. But regardless, there's so many pieces that I had ready to go that there's certainly no way that any one publisher even if they wanted me to be exclusive with them, they, they, they wouldn't have been able to take all of them. It would have been a backlog and, and maybe even next year we m- might've gotten to, to release the 12th piece. So, so fortunately, I think my, my publishers know that, that I, I write enough. And that, that even if I'm putting music out broadly with, with other folks that there will be, you know, every year or every other year, there will be something that I'll submit that, that I'm really proud of and that, that, that I hope will be a, a good fit for them, which will keep me, uh, sort of top of mind with with their viewers and readership, um, and 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 will allow me to continue to maintain those relationships.
0: When you're working with different publishers, are any of them coordinating with you on the marketing of a piece? Are they are they are they asking you to post on social media or to do X Y Z kind of on your end of things, or is it all just completely done in house and and you just find out about it when everyone else finds out about it?
1: Yeah, I think it kind of varies by publisher, but they are very uh, encouraged. They are encouraging of us, the composers, to do as much as we can on our social media channels and on our websites to to promote the pieces as well. Uh, And so they might put out a Facebook post or an Instagram post and they might say, composers, we've posted, can you please share that? Um, Others might say, you know, we're we welcome your description. Like we're going to submit a description to to Pepper, or we're going to submit a description to some festival. Uh, what would you like to say about the piece? Uh, how would you approach writing about this? Um, and so, of course, I always advocate that composers should take the um, uh, the initiative up front and say, you know, if they've got some ideas, like here's how I would love to position this piece. Here's how, how I think it might resonate and, and, and sell out or how it might land um, here's the the niche that I think it might might help fit uh, to, to because a pub, a publisher I mean they're dealing with dozens and dozens of pieces uh, depending on, on the size of the publisher a, a year uh, and, and it's there's just a lot for them to keep in mind. Um, so having pub having composers that will advocate for their stuff uh, as well certainly certainly helps.
0: okay so talk to me like I'm five I've just written a new piece I want to submit it to a publisher. How do I do that? And how do I actually get someone to listen to it?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing that that you would, would want to do is connect with a composer who's willing to give you some insight. <laughs> that is that is what one of the things that I did early on. Some of the composers that I, were mentoring me, I said, how, how do you navigate this process? It's always good to have people in the know. So that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, it, it, you got to have a good recording uh, if you're just starting out. There are some publishers who will accept a piece and who, as part of their publishing process, will get a demo choir to perform it and record it. That's part of their service, which is an incredible service. Um, But there's other publishers that won't do that and that expect you to have a good recording. Regardless, in order to get people to listen to your work and to get choral director excited about it, you absolutely need a good recording. Some people would even go so far these days as to say, you also need a good video. Like People not only want to hear it, but they actually want to see a choir performing it to really sort of get the flavor of it. Um, and all those things cost a little bit of money from hiring a full demo choir, which you can do. There's a few different great places to do that down to hiring uh, somebody like Matthew Curtis and choral tracks to, to sing essentially each part, layer them together. You can do that a, a lot more economically. But it's really helpful to get a recording. Then when you have that recording and your score that's cleaned up, you always want to make sure that you have somebody else who knows what they're doing with notation, look at your score, help you clean it up so that it's it's really professional looking. So professional looking score, professional uh, recording. And then you go to these various websites, places you might want to submit it to, and you'd ask them or you'd read about what their submission requirements are. And uh, most of these publishers are, are very transparent and very upfront. There's a place on their website that says submission policy, and they'll, they, they'll tell you um, how often it might take, where to submit things. And, uh, and I found it, it can take a while, like especially when you're just starting out, uh, it can take it can take months before you hear back, not necessarily with every publisher. Uh, some publishers are really review things quickly, and then you're off and running. Oftentimes the question is, well, how do I know which, which publisher to submit it to? That's where it really helps if you've got somebody who's in the business that can say, this kind of piece seems like it might be a good fit for Walton or ECS or Alfred or Santa Barbara. But the thing that that I oftentimes tell composers who reach out to me, I say, you can you can do uh, a Pepper search. So JW Pepper uh, provides a number of awesome services for composers. They've, they've, they've done really well by me and you can, They've got this robust search engine. You can pro, you can go to the Pepper website and you can say, I'm gonna search choral music, all concert and festival music, which essentially gives you the list of, of every piece out there or it's gotta be close. And then you search, you, you search by uh, best-selling. And so then you have the list of all the best-selling concert and festival music. And then you further refine that search by typing in the various publishers because they have all of these different, and there's like, I don't know, 40, 50 different publisher options. And then you, you have the best-selling pieces by each of these publishers, and you can, you can sort by, by, by that. And then you simply listen. And so I'll oftentimes tell emerging composers, I'll say, if you want to get an idea of what, what Santa Barbara music is really selling well, do this, this search. And then you can listen to a couple minutes of the top, you know, 10 pieces. You're like, okay, that's what sells well at Santa Barbara. Now do the same thing for ECS. Do the same thing for Beckenhorst and uh, Alfred and Hal Leonard. And you'll get this idea of of what their, release, what their niche is, at least in the last year or so, uh, which, which is just super helpful. At this point, sort of, I have kind of intuited that uh but with new composers who are just sort of trying to figure things out, that's a, it's a great, relatively easy, relatively quick way of figuring out where they might submit a piece. And then they can say, oh, I've got a piece that really sounds like this. Or, oh, it's it, this is it's oftentimes sort of staring them in at the face, like, well, it's, this is clearly a, a fit for this publisher. Submit it to that publisher. Wait until you hear back. You can never in the business submit to more than one publisher at a time. It's a big no-no. Uh, and then you'll hear back with either good news or or frustrating news uh and then you can submit to the next publisher and 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 on you go down down the line so let's
0: dig in a little more to how much music someone needs to be writing you you kind of alluded to this earlier but um you said 14 pieces was too much for a year but for some people if they're if this is all they're doing that seems like a small number of pieces i mean how do you determine what's enough
1: yeah it's a good question it and, and i know some composers who who will say, Kyle? I, I write fairly slowly. Uh, ideas come fairly, fairly deliberately, and and I might put out three pieces a year, and that I've never put out more than three pieces a year. Uh, I mean, downs- that sounds like
0: a dream. I guess if you can charge enough to only have to write three pieces of music in a year, yeah,
1: <laughs> then more yeah. power to you. But uh- <laughs> it's a it's a balance, I think, between like like I think the the danger of of flooding the market. And, and having pieces just sort of get lost in the shuffle, that, that it is it is real, that can happen. And it certainly happened to me in that, well, it happened to a lot of composers during the pandemic year, music that we wrote that we were really proud of, that just didn't get a chance to, to get out there. Um, and I think that that can happen in, in a, a normal year as well. If I've got, you know, there's only so much music that can get programmed. Uh, and, and if somebody says, well, what's, I really like Kyle's music, what's, what's his best new tune? um, they're not going to do generally, unless they're doing like, uh, a, a, uh, like a, a, an evening with Kyle or, or, or uh, some sort of a festival that, that sort of highlights a particular composer, which is awesome when it happens, but it doesn't happen all that often. Um, they, they might do a, a Kyle piece you know, once a year or once every couple of years, regardless of, and if there's three great pieces that I've put out, uh, they're just like, well, I might like them, but I, you know, but there's so much other awesome music that I want to do as well and, and other people and other voices and perspectives. I'm just not going to do that many pieces by one particular composer, whether it's me or or anybody that they might enjoy. So th- there is something to be said for those composers who who are just so deliberate and they only put out a couple pieces because then essentially people who, who follow them and who love their stuff, they're like, well, when that piece drops, it's going to get performed by all of these choirs who are just waiting. Um, but at the same time, uh, if I have an idea and I was like, well, I've got a piece I'd, I'd love to, I, I, to me, it doesn't make sense, uh, to hang on to it uh, just because it's, it's going to, it might resonate with some people. It might not have a chance to get, to get huge, um, because there's all these other pieces, both for me and other composers that it's sort of competing in the marketplace with, uh, but it might really resonate with somebody. Uh, and that's happened on occasion too, where a little known piece that, that isn't broadly, performed of mine, uh, but I'll get a nice email from somebody saying, Hey, I'm not sure how many choirs are doing this piece, but I just discovered it and it's been just awesome. And we've really loved it. And, and so it's like, okay, good. I'm It didn't get as much traction. I'm glad I put it out because it's it's still having an impact in, in, a, in a small way.
0: So it sounds like you're not only writing for commissions that if you get a piece, uh, if you get an idea for a piece that you just do it, you don't wait. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, correct. Correct. And, and at first, you know, the first couple of years when nobody knew who i was there were no commissions well yes a, a couple people knew who i was and maybe um, i've got a really good friend melanie brink who who has commissioned a couple of my works and she was the first one and uh, so she was in my corner from from the from the ground from ground zero but other people didn't know who i was and, and so yes i would write my own stuff and just say well i, I just put it out there and say well, i hope i hope it will resonate uh, and with people even though no one particular choir has commissioned it or is, is championing it. And now it's a mixture. Um, I'll take some commissions. Uh, and, and and sometimes I'll have, oftentimes what I do now, because I still have a, a large bucket of potential ideas, I will. a commissioner will approach me and say, I want to commission a piece. And I'll say, well, um, let me tell you about some ideas I've got. Here are some things that I know I want to write that I really think will resonate, either bits of text or a melody. Uh, and I might even share. Um, large parts of the text and, and this melodic idea I might take I've been known to take my, my phone and, and 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 actually play something in and then send it to the, the commissioner and say here here's an idea do you want me to run with this or maybe here's this idea and I know some composers don't like to do that at all but for me uh, it, it's, it's it's really worked well so there's a mixture of commissions and then just writing for fun and what I what I hope uh, might might have some traction
0: all right one final question if you were teaching today uh, teaching composition, what is it that you would have your students be doing to have them be ready for the current marketplace and the way things are going whether or not it's whether or not you steer them towards traditional publishing or self publishing or choral or instrumental but what what are the things that you would have them doing so that they would be ready because everything's changing all the time and you know things are not how they were 10 years ago 20 years ago
1: are you thinking like st- the 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 act of composition or sort of compositional insight and advice uh, or more of the business end of things?
0: Well, I guess I guess both. I guess that's a, I guess that's a poorly worded question. Um <laughs> I guess I guess what I'm really asking is um where do you see things going in the future in choral music and in publishing? Where what what are the changes that you predict? Let's let's have let's have you make news here. What's what's mm. coming down the road?
1: <laughs> well, one thing that I've been thrilled about compositionally in, in choral music is that I see more composers being willing to also write their own texts. When I, like five, six years ago when I was starting, uh, there, there really were not too many, uh, composers, at least that I was aware of that were also writing their own texts. Um, and, and there was a, a real stigma, I think, attached to, to composers, who were writing their own texts. Uh, there was a, a particular competition that I entered once and I happened to be uh, sitting at a table where the, the adjudicators were talking about the process and learned that they, they, this particular adjudicator was saying that they took the stash of compositions that, and they separated them into two piles to begin with. One was a pile where they set someone else's text, like a text that existed before. And one pile was one where the composer also wrote the text and they took this pile where the composer wrote the text and they threw those away. They wouldn't even look at those. Uh, they did not know, of course, that I was sitting there, <laughs> that I had entered that competition, and that I was one of those composers who had written his own texts that Ooh. ended up not even getting it looked at. Oof. Um, and that was it was eye-opening to me. Of course, it was frustrating. Um, and I can I can certainly sympathize with, with the thought that, that, that you run the risk of having, a, you know, a composer who is primarily a composer who might write a very cheesy text, and then you don't get the depth of text that you would if you were setting someone else, like a, a, a poet or, or somebody who considers themselves a, a lyricist or a text, text writer. Um, but I, I, I've always thought that that it's very possible to write both stunning music and also really evocative text and and thread them together. And that when you can do that, it's certainly, from my own perspective, super enjoyable uh, and and an awesome challenge to be able to do both because it allows the process to, to, as I mentioned earlier, be this iterative process where text influences music and vice versa. Um, But I think now there's more choral composers doing it and the Stigma uh, is is much, much less. Uh, I see even some of the, the the composers who who are known to be, and I'm not known to be a particularly sophisticated composer. Um, uh, much of my music has sort of a pop bent to it, uh, and sort of this modern contemporary element. Um, but even those composers who are, who are sort of known in the industry as being very sophisticated in writing high-level pieces, even they now are starting to write some of their own texts. So I love that. Um, so I, I like to encourage. That's a long way of saying that, that that's a change, a positive change. And I love to encourage uh, composers to, to do more of that. Though, of course, the danger, you have to have a high chisometer or cheeseometer, because uh, it, it can devolve very quickly. And you can have really schmaltzy um, and, and terrible terrible poetry and and nobody wants to sing that. So that's one change. Let me think if there's, if there's other sort of directions, um, you know, the sound of music, just in terms of the kinds of chords that are resonating, the kind of, um, harmonies, um, those tend to, to change and shift. If you know what I was playing for church music 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, lots of dominant chords, lots of diminished chords, uh, not much of that in the last few years and I, I think that's great. The, those, those new harmonies resonate much more with me. Um there's the, you know what AI is going to do to composition, of course, is a wide open question and, and one that I know keeps a lot of composers up at night. There there are programs out there that, that will write music, you know, for you. Yeah. Like how, how how much of that will will replace the, the human element? Uh, I'd like to think that, that that it won't. That there will certainly always be uh, a, a need for for those of us who, who craft something from scratch. But it's 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 nutty what what those computers can do now. Yeah. The business element, of course, is is super interesting as well. It, it used to be there was there was really no self publishing option decades ago. You would only rely on traditional publishers, or you wouldn't get your stuff out. And now it's just such a wide open space for, for lots of people and for people who have the desire and the, the, the skills and the, uh, the, the energy to commit to self-publishing that, you know, the sky is, is blue uh, for them and getting their music out on social media and other channels. Quite overwhelming, really, uh, especially for those of us who, who aren't digital natives and who, who, who struggle to even <laughs> figure out how TikTok works and, and the like. Well, Kyle,
0: thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. This has been a really insightful conversation. Uh, before we let you go, I'd like to share two of your pieces with our listeners, um, People Get Ready and Does the World Say. Do you mind just introducing both
1: of those real quick, and then we'll we'll cut in the audio afterwards? Sure. People Get Ready is the iconic sort of protest civil rights song from the 1960s. Curtis Mayfield wrote it, and uh, it's... I've always loved it. I don't know if you've had a chance to ever hear the, the Blind Boys of Alabama sing their their cover version of it. It's it's just super impactful. So I, I've known for a while that I wanted to do an arrangement of it uh, and finally had the opportunity uh, for a festival in Minnesota here this past year to, to, to bring that to, to life. So it is a it can work with just a piano accompaniment, but if you really want to have it sing, you can add bass, you can add keys, you can add Hammond organ, drums, and, and do it up. Uh, it's got a... Uh, spots for one or two or even more wailing soloists or bluesy soloists. Uh, and it's accessible. Uh, it won't take a lot of, of time to learn. The ending, I've added a new music that sort of stacks and layers up to kind of build it up to this idea of of everybody get on board. It's a very invitational piece. It says um, people get ready. There's there's And you can interpret it a number of different ways. But uh, change is coming. Uh, community is coming. Uh, it's an invitation to, to live into, uh, into, into grace and, and this uh, sense of community together. So that's one. People get ready. Does the world say, does the world say is original music and a a text that I wrote that essentially explores um, the the expectations and pressures that the world throws at us, uh, throws at all of us, but, but especially our young people. So it sort of names some of those pressures, those expectations, and then it encourages us to lean into the power of friendship, power of community, uh, essentially uh, inviting us to extend our hand and take, take the hand of others so that we can get through it together, that we are not in this uh, alone. Uh, so again, an invitational piece asking us to, uh, to, to reach out to those who might be bending in and, and perhaps breaking under the weight of, of this expectation that the world throws. Optional violin, um, sort of a flowing piano part. And there's a a really cool uh, social emotional learning curriculum that that, uh, Walton and I have created. So there's all sorts of activities and exercises and uh, discussions, conversations that you can do uh, for days, days on end uh, with your choir, if you'd like to pursue that. There's also, I think a really uh, interesting video that uh, that I worked on to to sort of bring this idea to life uh, in, in a video visual format.
2: Does the world say that you don't look the right way? Does the world say that you're just not enough? Does the world say that you're not in the right way?
0: Tell us how our listeners can find out more about you and uh, let us know what you have coming up in the near future. What, what, what do you got to promote?
1: Uh, Well, thanks for that. Um, People can always find me at kylepeterson.com. I've got a website that I keep fairly up to date Um, in terms of new stuff that I'm excited about, really thrilled about several things. I've got uh, next May I'm going in studio with a professional choir uh, to make a full length album that will be sort of commercial release album of my work. Super excited about that. There is a, a new uh, extended work of mine that is, has just in the in the process of the premieres right now, uh, but that is also in the process of publishing with ECS. It's called a vision unfolding. It's a 25 minute work with uh, sort of a chamber ensemble, piano, optional trumpet, snare drum, violin, that and spoken word that's threaded throughout where I had a chance to work with a spoken word artist from New York City, Chanel Gabriel, loosely based around themes of social justice and equity and inclusion and, and freedom and uh, really excited about how that turned out. That will be available very shortly, either the Octavos individually or as the entire 25 minute work. Got a couple of commissions um, that would likely be to, Difficult to explain quickly, um, but there will be a bluesy piece coming up. There will be a uh, sort of a, a pop folksy piece coming up and, and a couple of uh, pieces that would be perfect for a church choir coming up as well. So uh, lots of stuff in the hopper. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a good time to be creating music. Great. Well,
0: thanks so much. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Garrett. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Selling Sheet Music. If you like the show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email garrett at breezetunes.com to get in touch with me, and you can find my music at garrettbreeze.com. Selling Sheet Music is written, produced, and hosted by me, Garrett Breeze. Post-production for this episode was done by Jacob Molaski and our theme music was written by myself and David Dykstra. I'll see you next week. Now go write something.